right, great to see you this morning. Hope everybody's doing good. We should be doing good. Hey, we've made it to March. We survived just a couple of weeks away from spring and uh, looking forward to that. I know we got cold weather coming this week, and, and so, but they're saying warmer next weekend. Don't know how warm, but hey, we, we're, we're going to make it, so that's good news. We've been looking at First Peter as we've done that last week. We talked about the fact that Peter has really been defining the church, what it should look like, how we should act, that excellent behavior that we've been talking about, especially in a culture that we don't belong in. We talked about following in Jesus' steps and how that impacts things like going through suffering and how following in steps impacts our relationships in the home and in the church and in the world. Well, chapter 4 connects to that same idea. It gives us some other implications, though, for us to think about. So we're going to pick our way through here and see what Peter has for us. And, and immediately, the first verse raises a question, really the question that we want to think about today. And so verse 1 says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourself with the same purpose. So the question that comes to my mind is, what purpose is he talking about? What purpose is, was there in Christ's sufferings that we're supposed to aim for as well? And he answers that question in verse 2 when he says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There it is. The, the purpose we're trying to accomplish is living for the will of God. For the rest of the time we have on earth, we're all about doing the Father's will. For Jesus, that meant on the cross. That was what he had to deal with in the, in the garden. You know, when he was praying so intensely and, and he's praying, not my will, but yours be done. And what we'll see in this text is doing this, his will for us, which means submitting to whatever he has for us, is not so much a mystery, but something and, and something that we have to discover, but a direction for us to follow, no matter what the cost. So we're talking about when doing His will becomes the overriding desire of our lives. When everything else gets swallowed up in this one desire. So it causes us to ask ourselves, what's driving us? What's guiding us? And so we have to sit back and sort of do a life check. Why are we doing what we're doing? What's the purpose? Reminds me of what Paul said at the end of his life as he looked back on that life that he had lived. He's writing to his good friend Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So as Paul evaluates himself here, he uses this phrase, I'm poured out as a drink offering. He used that same phrase also as he wrote to the Philippians. He said in chapter 2, verse 17 there, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. This drink offering, you know, the, the deal with the drink offerings is that in the sacrificial system, they would be poured out on whole burnt offerings. They were used to enhance the whole burnt offerings. It's the thing about a, the whole burnt offering was an entire animal carcass, essentially, was being burned. 
Now think about that. Not exactly what you'd want to be smelling, right? <laughs> A whole burnt carcass. So the drink offering would be poured out to improve the aroma on that sacrifice. So Paul says, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, if what I'm doing, if I die with what I'm going through, but through it, it makes you stronger, it enhances your walk with Christ, it enhances your sacrifice, I'm celebrating that. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. It's like he's saying, hey, I made doing the Father's will my whole objective in life, even if it meant suffering, even if it meant persecution. And now Peter tells us, arm yourselves also with this same purpose. Arm yourself, prepare. It's like the picture of getting ready for battle. The whole idea is to make sure we're ready. Because what we're called to is not all feel-good stuff. It's not always easy. In, in fact, Jesus talked about following him in really strong terms. Many of us know this. When he, when he said in Luke 9:23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In Matthew 10, verse 38, he said, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus equates following him with carrying a cross. Carrying a cross, that's what, that's what condemned people do. So why would we take on that kind of challenge? Why would... What would drive us to take that on? Why would we make doing God's will the priority of our lives if that means we might suffer? Well, Peter gives us several reasons here, and the first one being this. This is why we would take that challenge on. First of all, growth. He says here, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we no longer commit any act of sin. What it does mean is that the, the power of sin to dominate our lives has been terminated. Sin's no longer in control of us. It's not what dominates us. And that happens because, first of all, we know Jesus set us free from sin. Romans 6 tells us that. But also that freedom has, that freedom has been more and more developed as we've matured in our faith. And that happens often through difficulties. It's the same idea that we see in James chapter 1. As James wrote and said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Why would we do that? Because knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, you know, as believers, we don't go out and choose suffering. That would be really odd of us to do that, right? But we choose to follow our Father's will even if it means suffering. And if that's the case, we can consider it joy because it can cause us to grow in our faith, which is the most important thing to us in life. Why would we make doing God's will the priority of our lives? Is it means that we might suffer? Because through that suffering, we grow. And then Peter gives us another reason, and that's because of our past experience. That's because we've tried the other route. We've gone the other way before. Verse 3 
says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you did not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So here is, for those people that Paul, Peter's writing to, here is life before Christ. And for us, we know that the time we spent before knowing him, we know that that time was sufficient. There was more than enough time for us in that, right? No believer is ever going to tell you they want to go back to when they didn't know Jesus just to experience again how they used to live life. The time we spent there was more than enough. And he goes on here to list a bunch of the sins these people were involved in, and, and you get the picture these are public sins. These sins were probably often committed in their worship, their pagan worship. You know, it was one sort of big, drunken orgy. And in fact, he uses the phrase here, excesses of dissipation. All that means is that this was one big stampede of pleasure seekers. It was spring break on steroids. And, and, and their old crowd is shocked that these Christians didn't want to be involved in this any longer. That may have been the way our lives looked before we met Jesus. Or it may have taken some other form, but whatever it looked like, we all had that time apart from him. We lived for ourselves. That's the path we were on. It's sort of like a traffic circle, right? You, you know when you're on a traffic circle and you know it's the first time you've been on that particular tra traffic circle? Every time I get, get on one for the first time, I inevitably am going to miss the exit I want. You know, i got to go back around again to catch the one I met. And that's the way life is for people when, before they come to Christ. It's, you're on this traffic circle, and so many people spend their lives looking for some place to exit. And they're just going in circles. I talked to a guy this week. Someone in his family had passed away. And a um, guy who neither of them go to our church, but he, um, he said, you know, this family member, he lived a rough life, and he died the same way. It's so sad. People live in life looking for some way to get off, looking for that exit. In the meantime, they're just going in circles. We've been there before. We've experienced that. No matter what our sins of choice might have been, it may have been the wild, crazy stuff that these people were involved in, or it might have been our sins were more sedate, you know, pride and jealousy, gossip, anger. Worry, whatever it was, we've gone that route. We've lived that way, and we did it long enough to know that it wasn't getting us anywhere. So we've chosen something different. We've chosen something better. When we chose to make God's will our objective in life, we've chosen a route that actually leads us somewhere. And if it happens to take us through some rough spots along the way, it's okay. The destination is worth the cost to us. We've tried the other. It didn't work. So we've chosen to make the Father's will our objective in life. Our past experience is reason enough to turn to God and follow his will. 
And then the third reason Peter mentions here is because judgment is coming. Verse 5 says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Boy, these, are some, these verses are some serious sounding stuff. For those who don't know Jesus, they're going to have to give an account to him who is the, who's to judge the living and the dead. There's not a whole lot to add to that. To think of standing before Jesus one day and be judged by him for rejecting him. There really aren't words to grasp that moment. And then verse 6, it's one of those verses that we, like we talked about some last week, the verse that Peter throws in there, a lot of people disagree about, but I think what it's, the point is this. There are those who have heard and believed the gospel, but then it died. They were judged in the flesh as men, maybe some of them physically put to death. Those believers, they're alive in the spirit. That's the good news. But for all of us, what all of us should know, believers and unbelievers, that the end of all things is near. And if it was near when Peter wrote this, how close do you think it is now? I mean, if there was anything that can get us thinking, if there's anything that can cause us, give us reason to pause in this crazy world that we're in, running as fast as we can. If there's anything that can stop us in our tracks for a moment, it's thinking about the fact of how much time we have left, how quick it is, and how soon it will happen that all of us will stand before God. So Peter says to us as Christians, be of sound judgment. Be of sound judgment. Think straight. Don't get off track in your thinking. Don't be controlled by your emotions. Don't be controlled by thinking about ourselves all the time. Don't be controlled with messed up thoughts about who we think God is. Think straight. And have a sober spirit. It's talking about staying alert, being spiritually observant. So we are to be prepared and alert to what God wants us to do. So think straight. Have a sober spirit. Why? For prayer. See, we can't pray right if our thinking is manipulated by pursuing things that are inferior to the will of God. So with all this in mind, all these talked about in these early verses, he goes on now to tell us what the will of God is. This is what we're going to be all about. If we know why we're seeking to do the will of God and that we're doing that because we want growth in our life because of our past experience and because judgment is coming. And if we've got our thinking straight, knowing that the end is coming, here are some things that we're supposed to be doing in doing the will of God. Again, not a mystery, a direction. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ in serving one another. 
as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's Peter telling us what God wants us to do. Here's our Father's will. This is what we're supposed to be about, even if it means that we suffer through it. Above all, be, keep fervent in your love. Here's the most important important part of following his will everything else comes from above all the other stuff you might be about even the good stuff above all keep fervent in your love for one another in the in the church we are to be fervent in our love for each other fervent talking about exerting maximum effort in, in the ancient Greek literature that was used of a horse that was stretching out and running at full speed, Peter's saying put that type of power and that type of effort into loving each other which tells us it's way more important than just feeling emotional about someone. It's the tough work of helping and forgiving. Love covers a multitude of sins. Problems and grievances get fixed when we show love. We can't say we're loving somebody when we're holding on to some past hurt, some past offense. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Show hospitality. That's the next step. Show hospitality. Be hospitable. So that idea takes us beyond the people we may know immediately to other believers. Maybe people we've never met. That was so important in the New Testament times because many Christians were on the move. They were on the move sometimes because they were involved in ministry. They were on the move sometimes because of persecution Sometimes it was a combination of those things. People were on the move, and so they were reliant on each other. They were reliant on other Christians to take care of some of their, of some of their needs, those tangible needs, food, clothing, and shelter. That's what we do as a church. When we help families here in our own church family, people in our community. That's what we do as a church when we meet needs in Thailand or Africa or anywhere God's people have a need. That's what we should do as individuals. Be hospitable. Meeting tangible needs without complaint. I mean, that'd take the whole meaning out of it, wouldn't it? If we're doing all that and we're complaining about it, don't complain about it. Showing hospitality is about us doing our Father's will. And then verse 10, he talks about serving, serving using our spiritual gifts. As each one who has received, as each one has received a special gift, employ in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Those spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches us that every believer is given a spiritual gift or gifts. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he said, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit that's referring to these gifts the Spirit's given to us. And here we're told, each one has received a special gift. So all of us as Christians, we've been given a special gift, an ability that's to be used in the church to serve others. And, and if, you, if, you, if you're not sure what your gift is, by the way, uh, help you out a little bit there with... Uh, if you can sign up for our serve class, it's coming up in two weeks, March 24th. 
And in that serve class, that's one of the things they'll talk about is helping you determine what your gift is so that you can use it. Because Peter says here, we're to employ them. Employ it in serving one another. See, spiritual gifts are never about us building ourselves up. They're about building others up. They're about building the church up. Spiritual gifts are for the common good, we're told. They're to be used to serve one another, not ourselves. And we are to serve as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We, we, he's, he's given us his grace. We've got a responsibility now to share that. And now this manifold grace, it literally means many-colored or multifaceted. It's, it's like a diamond. There's a beauty to God's grace that we show as we use our spiritual gifts in the church. And he gives us some examples here. Whoever speaks, there are gifts that have to do with talking. Some people have the gift of teaching. They shouldn't be teaching human opinion. That's not what we're about in the church. We're about the utterances of God, what God has given us in his word. And those who are serving, they shouldn't be doing that through their own strength, but with God's strength. There's something beautiful about the church operating the way it's supposed to operate. And those of us in the church doing the, using those gifts that God has given us through his direction and in his power, that's when we're operating in a way that only he gets the praise. That's when the multifaceted, manifold grace of God is shown, and it's great. Last couple of weeks, I've had some, some really great conversations with people. People who have been in our last uh, Connect class, and several of them, as we've talked, taking that step of faith for the first time. Just been so excited to, to watch that happen. And, and listening to them talk about their experience in ending up here at, at church. And, and um, you know, they, they, they tell me about who invited them the first time and what it was like when they walked in the doors the first time and how they felt welcomed and people were so friendly to them and how much they enjoyed the music, how much they enjoyed the message or were challenged by it. And, and, and all this stuff, going, they tell me all these details, and then, they, then here they are taking this step of faith. And I just think, wow, that's so good. That's the multifaceted grace of God. God using you, God using us to draw someone to himself. That's what it's all about. God's gifts given to us to be used to build his church. It's beautiful. It's great. But that doesn't mean we're going to get to coast into heaven in some sort of earthly utopia, does it? It's not, you know, as beautiful as the church is and operating like it is doesn't mean that everything just goes like it's always supposed to or like we'd hope it would. Look at what Peter says next. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. There's, oh, it just went dark, didn't we? Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. 
If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter's like, hey, all good. We're manifold grace of God. Everything's great. The people are using their gifts. Everything. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. See, these people that Peter was writing to were just about to experience Nero's breakout of persecution on them. Thankfully, that's not something that we, have to, we are anywhere close to having to face right now. What we have usually are sort of the general struggles of life. And again, you know, sometimes those, those can be huge. Aside from persecution, just the struggles of life can be heavy. And we can respond to those in one of three ways, the same way we could respond to persecution. We could give up. We could just quit. We could gut it out. Or we try to pull ourselves together and muster up enough strength and just make it through. Or we could give it to God. And we can make sure he is praised even in the trial. Don't be surprised by any of Jesus told us, Matt, John 16, these things I've spoken to you that are, so that in me you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation. And you have tribulation in this world. But take courage. I have overcome the world. As long as we're in the world, we can expect to have problems. Don't be surprised. We're not in heaven yet. We should expect that there will be problems in this world. And whether it's direct persecution or just struggles in life, in any case, we shouldn't be surprised. That tough thing you're facing right now, it shouldn't rock your faith. We can't begin questioning the goodness of God in that. You know, we, we, we say God is good all the time. A lot of times we say that after God's just blessed us with something. God blesses us with something good, and we say oh, God's good all the time. And, and, and we're absolutely, that's absolutely true. And his blessing on us, that's great. But he's also good when life's falling apart, right? He's good all the time. When the issues that we're facing seem too heavy for us to carry, God's good. When we're not sure which way to turn, God's good. Don't be surprised by the fire ordeal that you're facing. Use it as an opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ. You say, oh, how do I do that? Well, honor him through it. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in our Savior, even in the middle of that trial. We also do it by making sure we're not going through whatever we're facing because we brought it on ourselves. You know, take a look. Have I done something wrong? Peter says here, hey, verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That almost makes me laugh. 
This is a troublesome meddler. It doesn't seem to fit, right? Make sure none of you are suffering as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a troublesome meddler. On the surface, that doesn't sound nearly as serious, but what I was talking about is someone who's, who's, who's an agitator, somebody who's causing problems rather than being a peacemaker, someone who's stirring things up. Don't be someone who causes drama that brings division in the church. And if the time were to come that we are ever suffering directly because of our faith, don't be ashamed. Glorify God. Peter lets us know time, it's time for judgment to be given to the household. It happens. God, you know, there's judgment going on on us as believers right now. There is. It's not a judgment for condemnation, but it's a judgment for correcting us and cleansing us. It's good that God's judging us. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. God deals with our sin. Hebrews 12, he deals with us as a father. He's looking at it and making decisions about how, you know, are we, are we, are we, are we straying from him? So if God is dealing with our sin as his children, what will happen to those who don't know him, who don't have the blood of Christ to cover their sin? See, for the lost, the result is infinitely more devastating. The excruciating difficulty that Jesus went through to redeem us, they don't, they haven't, that's not been applied to them. It's infinitely more devastating because our salvation, the salvation they've rejected, came with incredible difficulty. Jesus suffering and the pain now that believers experience because of their faith. See, a person who's godless doesn't get a place in heaven simply because we think that God is loving. Without the price that Jesus paid being applied to their sin, they're going to die and they're going to spend eternity suffering and separated from him. But for those who suffer now, according to the will of God, in our suffering, we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who always does what is right. We can trust him even during those times because he is trustworthy. Doing his will. Is it the overriding desire of your life? What's driving you? What's guiding you? If it is, you'll be prepared spiritually. You'll love. You'll be hospitable. You'll serve. You'll do all that, handling the hard things in life by trusting our Father and having joy and being identified with His Son. You'll do all that because you want to grow as a believer. You'll do that because you know what the other route, how it took you nowhere, but following him takes you somewhere. You'll do all that knowing that judgment is coming and it's coming soon. 
Our life here won't last forever. And we'll stand before him and the eternity of millions of people around us hangs in the balance. It's time, if you've let his will slip out of the, the place of priority in your life, it's time to get that straightened out, to turn to him, to know his forgiveness, and to serve him with faithfulness. A wonderful, loving, gracious father has let us know what his will is. Will we get it done? You stand with me. I'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace to us, your love, your provision. Every uh, thing that we need in life, we know you've already provided for us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us, Father, to live faithfully before you to follow and do your will. Father, that we would love, that we'd be hospitable, that we'd serve. And we do that in such a way that you are glorified through it, God. Help us to always acknowledge and point people toward you. For people who might be here who have never taken that stuff, Father, they're still on that circle, looking for a way to get off, looking for an exit. God, help them to turn to you today, to know the direction, know the route that brings them, uh, Father, to a place of destiny that is before you and in your presence for all eternity. Thank you again for your word today. Thank you for your love for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.